Christian Jarrett, welcome. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. You bet. So I imagine one of the challenges to writing about personality is that it's uh, a bit of an unwieldy term. You know, it's one of those things that everybody basically knows what personality means. But if you asked 100 people, even 100 psychologists probably to define it, you'd get a lot of variation in the answers. So maybe to kind of start off, I want to get a sense for how you think about or define personality. And then kind of as a follow-up, has that changed at all over the course of writing a book about personality change? So I see personality as the, our habits of uh, thought, emotion, our ways of relating to other people and the world. So our sort of habits of behavior. And I would say I, I like um, a description that Brent Roberts has, the personality psychologist Brent Roberts. So he says your personality kind of is how you act uh, without thinking about it in, in an automatic way. So when an extrovert walks into a crowded room at a party, they don't deliberately, effortfully say, right, now I'm going to start um, socializing and chatting to everybody. It's just, it's what they do. It's their inclination. And I, I guess, crucially, personality is what plays out over the, it's these how these tendencies play out over the long term. Because we all have different sides to us. So you know, anyone uh, acts disagreeable some of the time, grumpy and moody some of the time. Uh, everyone is extroverted sometimes, you know, maybe with their best buddy or whatever. Um, but personality is is the average of those tendencies, you know, over kind of a period of years, really. That's an interesting way to think about it as sort of an average. Um... Yeah, sometimes the metaphor I think of and talk about is in terms of defaults. You know, like you get a new phone or you get a new computer or something and it's got kind of a default color scheme or background on it or it's just sort of the way it, it looks normally, but it, it is still kind of customizable. So it seems like we're kind of zeroing in on the same thing there. Um, so obviously there, there are tons of different theories and frameworks um, and ways of measuring personality. And a lot of people probably think of things like the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or more clinical people probably think of things like the MMPI. But in terms of um, kind of personality research these days, the big five is really like the gold standard and the, and the one you kind of frame things in terms of most of uh, mostly from your book. But I want to I want to kind of zoom out and talk about that a little bit more from a maybe a bigger kind of philosophical level. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, is, is the big five, do you think the big five is so dominant because we are, the science is relatively confident that it sort of reflects or illuminates a some kind of deeper truth about human nature and the structure of personality? Or is it just that kind of like a historical accident that this is the framework that kind of won out that most researchers got behind? And, and so that's why it's sort of the de facto one? Or, 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 you know, kind of put another way is, do we know how do we know that personality theory is not only reliable, but also valid, that it's actually getting at something relatively objective in human nature, if that makes sense? Yeah, so I've, you're right, I've very much grounded my book in personality science. Um, and there is this kind of consensus emerging, as you say, around the, the, the big five traits. And I, I would say, I've trusted, yeah, I'm trusting these studies that have been conducted now over so many years that have, they've essentially boiled it, personality variability down to these five main traits, which, 
if you if you reduce it any to any fewer, you're losing something. Uh, you know, so if you say there are only two traits or three traits, you're losing something in that measurement. Whereas if you if you were to do a study with more than the the, the five traits, you're it's now redundant. You're like you're you're starting to measure the same things uh, more than once. You're just giving them a different name. Um, so it, a lot of it is very actually a lot of personality psychology is you know very technical and statistical, and that's how they've uh, sort of drilled down to these these five. Uh, it's kind of like a distillation process, and you you touched on it then as well. Like I think some of the reason to believe in this framework is because of what psychologists call you know the the reliability of tests. If, if you know if you give the same test to the same person uh, twice apart, it should you should get roughly the same score, that kind of thing, and validity of the tests. You know, is it really measuring what it's meant to be measuring, and it and are the tests predictive? You know, so do they? Do people's personality test test scores tell you something useful about the likelihood of future outcomes, whether that's health or career success or what have you? And the Big Five framework is very, very seems to be very robust and um, powerful in that regard. You know, statistically, and so that I think that gives us confidence that we're measuring something meaningful with the Big Five. Has writing a book about personality change changed your personality at all? Because I assume you've spent a couple of years at least uh, kind of at various stages working on this book and thinking and reading a lot and talking to a lot of people about personality. Um, so yeah, I, I, what's your, what's your, if you look back um, to where you were a few years ago, uh, what do you think? Yeah, well, I have to confess, I, it's taken more than two years. Uh, <laughs> so I, w- I was slow writing it. Um, then I lost my editor that slowed things down. Then the pandemic came along. So this this thing has been going going a while, a number of years. And you know what? You're absolutely spot on. It had it has changed how I see personality. I, I never used to see it as malleable. I you know I used to think it was pr- pretty much fixed. Um, I thought it was almost by definition the part of ourselves that doesn't change. Um, everything I've learned, all the studies I. I've come across and people I've spoken to has made me realize, although personality is relatively stable, it is far from fixed. And there is, um, again, uh, if I could be a bit confessional, (laughs) I would say, um, yeah, it's made me feel quite strange at times writing this book, you know, reflect, I guess, reflecting on my own personality. um, I, I think it's probably useful for us in our relationships to believe that see a certain amount of um stability in each other you know because it's very disorientating uh to think that it if you see people capable of a lot of change it it can maybe be a bit unnerving you know when you marry if you get married to someone you know you don't think they're going to be someone else 10 years hence or, or what have you and the other thing is finally is i yeah, I think I felt a certain kind of pressure almost because I'm advocating in this book for how to change, how we can change ourselves uh, in positive ways, like intentional personality change. Yeah, and I think in a strange kind of way, I've, I've never written a sort of self-helpy book before. So I think it's made me, I don't know, I felt a certain pressure like to be able to live out the book's message in a sense and and I and I did feel for a time while I was writing it I think I did feel I was doing that because 
um, I don't know if you remember from the book, but, you know, I talk about, um, I suppose, coming out of my shell somewhat, um, doing more public talks, making an effort to, because I'm, you know, I'm a writer and an editor uh, as a profession, so, you know, which is very solitary a lot of the time. I made an effort, I did make a conscious effort to kind of build social activities in, into my life. And I felt I was kind of living the, the message of the book. And then the pandemic hit. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I, uh, like everyone else, um, you know, I was forced into this strange, very isolated lifestyle. And I think I felt certain things regressing back to, well, uh, you know, as you described it, the kind of factory, factory settings on, on a device or what have you. And yeah, I think that's almost made me feel like, you know, so what's my answer now? Like where, what's happened to my great advice now when um, circumstances kind of overwhelm you in that way? Yeah, it's interesting. And I, you know, I, I was really, I was genuinely hooked from the beginning of your book, um, which is certainly not true of most nonfiction I read these days. <laughs> because you, you tell this great story about personality in your own life, which is you kind of describe yourself as, as a younger kid being um, a little bit more on the shy and kind of reserved or sort of introverted side. Um, but then in your, when you went away to university and kind of in your early 20s, kind of again, sort of coming out of your shell and really you know, people who knew you at one point thinking like, who is this, you know? Um, and, and then leaving the kind of university setting and going off and becoming a writer and an editor and it, it kind of becoming more solitary and your personality sort of um, flexing and, and sort of adjusting or adapting um, to those different circumstances. And and I, I resonated with this because I have always felt very much like this. Like I feel like in a lot of ways, the person I am post, I don't know, 20, 25 years old is so different um, than the person I was w in terms of those factory default settings um, as a kid. And I, but I've never heard anyone describe it like you did in a way that resonated with my own experience. So I, I'm and, and obviously this wasn't something you were intentionally thinking about like you have been since writing this book, right? So if this change did happen, say, you know, in your kind of late teens, early 20s, what do you attribute that kind of personality adaptability to? Like, what do you think are the mechanisms at play there? So, well, I think there are, there are a few. So I think our personality is obviously, as it manifests, is a reflection of our, like our genetic endowment, but also we're shaped by our life experiences, also by the social roles we take on. And the, the the cultures that we inhabit, and you know what the norms are, like social norms, and and I think we occupy informal social roles as well, like in our friendship group, friendship groups, we develop a reputation maybe, and we start living up to that particular reputation, whatever it might be, you know, getting pigeonholed. And so I think for me, when I left school to go to college, it it, it was like a whole new, you know, a clean slate there was very much a culture of partying and going out. I don't know if it was the same at your experience, but the first sure. year it was, it was like the studying was definitely, I don't know, there was this expectation that study was something you caught up with in your second year and that the first year was <laughs> uh, for having fun. And I, I suppose, you know, you're in a brand new place, new people. Um, I was, I suppose you could say, lucky enough uh, really early on to fall in with a friendly crowd 
and I, I made friends very early on with an extremely outgoing, you know, strongly extroverted guy who is like when I was hanging around with him, he brought out my extroverted side, I think. And it, again, you get that kind of chemistry that plays off between people. And maybe that's underestimated sometimes in, in you know, in how our personality manifests, like how we are influenced by our relationships. And the different sides to ourselves that different people bring out. So I think for me at college, it was like, you know, it was a perfect combination of those different things, the culture, new place, the, the friendships I made. Um, I think a little bit of alcohol probably helped as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or maybe, I mean, uh, because, you know, when you asked me to, de to define what personality is, and I, you know, I said about the traits and the uh, sort of habits of behavior and emotion and so on, um uh, some uh psychologists also they talk about this kind of hierarchy of personality so that part of our personality is also our like our values and our goals and then even above that is the our narrative identity and uh, how we see our lives autobiographically kind of unfolding and i suppose another aspect or another fact could be like when i started college and i'm sure it's the same for lots of people you know, my, my values and my goals changed, you know, you're at that. Uh, so for me, it was, I think I was um, 18 going on 19 when I started uh, university and, you know, suddenly my priorities were very much socializing and, uh, you know, dating and hanging out, you know, hanging out with, you know, all those kind of values and goals suddenly were a lot higher. And then of course it makes sense, uh, you know, extroversion suddenly becomes, um an important very that you know that's the key trait in that environment with those goals yeah it's it's so funny i i when i was reading your story and, and now even listening to you elaborate on it a little bit more it reminded me of my own where i i remember the, the first week i was at college i had this knock on a door and this this oldest junior senior uh third or fourth year comes up and says hey like do you play sports and i said yeah i guess and he said come on we're like rugby practice is starting and he, he just said, grab some cleats and like, let's go play. And I all of a sudden got dragged into playing on the rugby team. And then very similarly, I had a, my roommate who became my, my best friend was a very extroverted kind of gregarious social person. And so I, I really relate to this idea. And I think it's underappreciated of how much the um, kind of intimate relationships can really influence and shape our personality. Um, and the other thing too, I wanted to run this by you. One of my, part of my theory is the older we get, especially around this, this age, you know, kind of late teens, early twenties, we have much more, a lot of us have much more influence over our environment. So we can kind of shape our environment to be more conducive to our own preferences, right? Where when we're younger, we're just sort of at the mercy of what parents and teachers and coaches and people kind of tell us to do or encourage us to do. Yeah, yeah, I think that's spot on. Yeah, because yeah, when I think about it, starting at university, you know, suddenly you're not restricted to only being friends as you are at school, like with the kids in your class, for example. It's like you yeah. suddenly, yeah, the whole of your year group and even beyond, obviously, opens up, and the, the social clubs and sports clubs you can join are, uh, uh, you know, span across the different year groups and the and the different. Uh, subjects uh, the, that are being studied and so yeah your preferences for the kind of uh people you want to hang out with and how you feel in different company 
um, you've got more choice over that. I think you're, I think you're spot on there. At the same time, there, there, there do seem to be a lot of people who, um, who don't experience that much change in their personality. And I, I do kind of wonder if, you know, like in intelligence research, there's, there's this idea of a, a kind of an underlying G factor, which kind of cuts across all the different slices of, of intelligence and represents a relatively stable um, component of intelligence. I almost wonder if there's something there with, and I don't know if you've come across, I haven't, but I don't know if you've come across anything like that, where I wonder if there's kind of an underlying factor that represents like personality adaptability, like the, the degree to which you're able to sort of flex your preference and tendencies in accordance with like your environment or your community or whatever sort of situation you find yourself in. And, and I don't think, I mean, maybe that's related to openness. Um, one of those personality, but it, it seems like almost like a relatively independent trait. What, what do you, what do you make of that? Yeah. The, you've reminded me of there, there's, um, yeah, there's part of my book where I kind of go into like, what are the foundations of intentional personality change? And I think I remember I did come across this proposal that, yeah, it it's almost like a, a trait that varies between people is their adaptability, a bit like you're describing. And um, I, I think what, from what I remember, though, is there's every reason to believe that that trait, like the others, is also changeable if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so like with enough help um and support and maybe if someone who is not very adaptable, not very flexible, they might be, I would imagine this is the kind of person who's inclined, you know, to routine, um, who's less likely to try out um wh- whether by force of circumstance or to do with their personality, you know, they uh, their situation doesn't change very much. Their lifestyle doesn't change very much. They hang around in the same company. All that sort of thing you see is going to is going to reinforce their stability of, of their personality. Right. Um, so, but but you know, potentially by with help, um, if they were encouraged uh, to break out of that routine, uh, to try out new experiences, and to make new friends, that you know, you could begin to see the the sort of plasticity of their personality come into play, I think. Yeah. Let's uh, shift gears a little bit. I want to pick your brain about neuroticism, which is one of the the core factors in the, in the big five. Um, so it's sort of a, a pillar of personality. Um, now this is, this, I'm a professional psychologist and this concept still confuses me to this day because I feel like there's so many meanings attached to this word. So if you just took your average person off the street and, said neuroticism uh, or neurotic i think there's the idea of like woody allen you know like the, this kind of like very anxious sort of nervous nelly like always worried about something um but then there's also this other variant of neurotic which i think of as like um the character rabbit from winnie the pooh someone who's like a real kind of perfectionist and super tightly wound and almost a little kind of obsessive compulsive like things have to be just so or else you know <laughs> i kind of lose it um but then there are also more clinical terms, which or, or sort of ways of thinking about it, which which you describe a little bit in the book. Um, sometimes neuroticism I've seen defined as broadly sensitivity to emotion, right? So just like the degree to which you feel emotion um, subjectively. 
But then I've also seen it framed specifically as the degree to which you feel negative emotion, like your sensitivity to to stress and, and sort of negative events in your life. Whereas extroversion is more your sensitivity to positive um, experiences. So I don't know, you've been immersed in this world, uh, certainly more than I have for the last few years. So I don't straighten me out. Like what, how should we be thinking about the idea of neuroticism? Yeah. So, well, so in the book, I definitely, I frame it in terms of how they, how they treat the concept in the big five theory. And yet, so my understanding is that it is our sensitivity to negative emotion and it's how it's, 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 the higher you score on neuroticism, the more emotional instability you have. So, you know, you're more prone to low moods. Uh, you're more sensitive. You're, you know, you're more sensitive to criticism. Uh, you're more anxious. You worry more, and you're more prone to emotions like shame and guilt and dread. You know these kind of things. That so that's my understanding of it. And and for those reasons, if you score highly in neuroticism, you're much more vulnerable to being diagnosed with mental health problems in in your life. Um, yeah. So it's almost like your it's like your brain is sort of wired to be especially attuned to sort of the the negatives and to feel those when you do experience them. Um, but it's interesting that that's sort of dissociated from your sensitivity to positive. So I like, I am, when I think about this, I almost imagine kind of like a two by two grid with sort of like on one axis is low and high sensitivity. And on the, the other axis is sort of positive and negative. So it's interesting that theoretically you could have someone who is um, very high on neuroticism and also very high on extroversion. So they feel both positive and negative emotions very intensely. Or you could have someone who is, say, very low on extroversion and doesn't feel positive emotions very intensely, but also very high on neuroticism. So is, is, that, is that true? And do we know what the, what is the distribution look like in that grid? Like, is it relatively even? Is it sort of a normal distribution of... Or, or is it, yeah, I don't know. What, what do we know about that? <laughs> yeah, I, I think your characterization there, I think, is is absolutely right. So I think it's maybe a common misconception, for example, that all extroverts are kind of confident and <laughs> don't worry and, and, and so on. Whereas you, you can get, yeah, as you say, like neurotic extroverts who... Um, uh, they want to go to the party, uh, but then they they spend uh, after the party that they, they they spend ages agonizing over what they said and did they upset anyone or say the wrong thing, um, and, and like and you can have the reverse. So you can have someone low in extroversion who, you know, isn't drawn to the possible rewards of going to the party. It doesn't you know it, it doesn't motivate them. But if they're also low in neuroticism if they have to go to the party or they have to give a public talk, you know, it's, they don't want to do it. They don't, they don't enjoy it. Uh, it. They don't find it stimulating, but if they're low in neuroticism, it's, they can handle it. And it, it's, uh, they're not going to agonize about it afterwards, how they performed uh, and, and what have you. Um, you know, as to your question of like, how is it distributed? I, 
my hunch would be that it's normally distributed. I have to confess, yeah, I don't, I don't know the scientific answer to that. I would, I would think, um, because because all the five traits are normally distributed, I, I think you will end up with, on average, yeah, sort of roughly equal members of those different kind of groups that you just described. Yeah, so you get about about a quarter of people in each of those kind of quadrants. Yeah. yeah. Now, especially when you're talking about neuroticism and, and extroversion. It's hard not to get sort of um, judgy about this, like <laughs> to, to like simplify, like it's good to be like the quadrant everyone wants to be in, right? Is like high on extroversion and low on neuroticism. You, f- you feel really positive emotions a lot <laughs> and you don't feel the negative stuff at all, right? Like, yeah. so awesome. Like, shouldn't we all just want to and try and be like that? Or I don't know, but like, so that's intuitive. But it, in a weird way, it kind of makes me nervous. Like, I don't know, like m- maybe there's something. So, so there's obviously a downside to being high in neuroticism. Like you feel more anxious or sad or whatever it is. You just feel those negative emotions more intensely. Um, but doesn't it, would would these traits have stuck around from an evolutionary perspective if they weren't adaptive? Right. Like, so how do you, how do you think about that as someone who's writing a book that's, you know, so I, I don't want to say it's, it's, a, it doesn't really feel like a self-help book, but it, but it's in the vein of kind of self-improvement, right? Like if you want to change your personality in a certain way, how do you th- like, is there in a strange way, is there an ethical consideration here of like, if you are high on neuroticism, should you try to lower your neuroticism? Like, would that be a, is that a good thing? I don't know. What, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, I, I was definitely very conscious of that right in the book because I think I'm guilty in the book of, yeah, definitely implying it's better to be extroverted. And I definitely don't want, I don't want to send the message that introverts should try to be more extroverted. Um, you know, that one is better than the other. I, I think on, on that one, um, I suppose what, what I'm trying to say is, if it would help you to be more extroverted, you know, to achieve your goals and live the life you want to live, then here's how I, I want to help you uh, become more. Ext- th- these are the ways you can become more extroverted and therefore benefit. Um, with, I think I feel less. I have less sort of um, ambivalence with neuroticism because yes, definitely, as you hinted, from an evolutionary point of view, there are survival advantages for being more fearful. And being more timid, um, you know, as in being more prone to an- anxiety and being more sensitive, um, you know, you can imagine, you know, there's uh, there's obvious survival advantages for being the one who's uh, bold enough to go <laughs> uh, be at the front of the pack in a hunt or whatever. Uh, but obviously, there are risks that come with that, and so there's some advantages to being the one the the, the one who's more wary and more timid and doesn't take so many risks Uh, and obviously um if you're if you're fretful and you're worrying you're more likely to take you know you could you could argue you're more likely to take uh amelia to uh you know um action to prevent those bad things happening Mm -hmm. Um, preventative action um but i i what what i what convinced me as i was writing the book is just the evidence is so overwhelming that people higher in neuroticism are more prone to depression, anxiety, poorer physical health as well. Uh, they're more prone to stress 
uh, at work in their personal relationships you know they're more likely to get divorced for example that kind of thing and have you know have arguments and I just thought I can't you know you just <laughs> it's just it's hard in modern contemporary life to say it, there's an advantage to being high in neuroticism so uh, with that one you know I, I mean you you could kind of make a case that Imagine a you know a, a project team in a, in a business. You you could argue that there's some benefit to having someone higher in neuroticism on the team. They're they're the one that might be more inclined uh, to be a whistleblower. Uh, you know they're the one that might be more likely to you know keep everyone's feet on the ground. You know let's not get carried away. Let's do the safety checks. That's um, uh, and so on. So I mean you you can kind of make a case, but I get I suppose on an individual level just. It looks pretty grim. If you are strongly uh, strong in neuroticism, it, it, it's not a great outlook for you. So that's that's why, yeah, I, I basically try and give a lot of, advi of advice for how to um, lower that trait. No, and I think you you do a good job in the book of very judiciously sort of framing it from that perspective of if you person if this aligns with your values and what you want out of life to be more extroverted, then you should know that you can do that. And there are, and you, you go through, there's so many great kind of techniques and way to do, ways to do that, that you illustrate in the book. Um, I guess I'm, I'm sort of interested on a higher, and I'm going to, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. Given that kind of caveat, I'm really interested in this, this dilemma of there seem to be certain things that on an individual level make people really unhappy and probably in general, just make their life worse. But on a societal level, like on a collective level, whether you're talking about a tribe in the, you know, sitting around the campfire in the savannah or like an entire kind of modern society, on a population level, we benefit from having these people with what are on an individual level undesirable traits like neuroticism. So if you, it's a kind of a crazy thought experiment, but let's imagine it's 30 years in the future. You, Christian Jarrett, are dictator of the world, um, <laughs> and you, your chief scientist comes up to you and says, we've got this amazing new formula. We can inject this into the world's water supply, and it will reduce the levels of neuroticism globally by 50%. Do you do it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I would be really... I imagine, and I, as a therapist, I see all these people in my practice who have this as a common trait. They're very high in neuroticism. Like no matter what their diagnosis is, that is absolutely true. And it leads to a lot of individual suffering. Um, so I think, yeah, hell yeah. You know, like reducing neuroticism by 50%. But like, I don't know, that also worries me in a very existential way. If we, like, if we just eliminate it or drastically reduce that trait in the population. So I'm curious, what, what do you think about that dictator, Christian? What, what <laughs> it's scary you have a crystal ball and you've seen my plans. <laughs> I think uh, I, I think the counter argument to that would be that being um, low in neuroticism or, ha or having, you know, flipping it on its head, high, having high emotional stability and resilience doesn't mean you, you're never unhappy. It doesn't mean you're never, you know, you're never jealous or have a sense of injustice. It's, I think, really neuroticism, high neuroticism is, it's, it's dysfunctional um, emotionality. You know, it, it, it's emotional dysregulation. So 
you you can be uh, low in neuroticism with that um, chemical that I put in the water supply. You can, and it it's lowered your neuroticism. Um, it doesn't mean I would argue that you you don't feel a sense of injustice or um, you don't feel unhappy because you've seen someone being treated badly or or whatever it might be. Um, it but it means you act on those emotions in a constructive way, you know, rather than, than for example, just internalizing them and worrying uh, in, in a fruitless fashion. So it's not, uh, I mean, you'll know this as a, you know, uh, as a clinical psychologist, working with someone with the difficult emotions is not really about ridding their life of difficult emotions. It's It's trying to help them work with their emotions in a constructive way as much as possible um yeah so it, it, it's not here you know it's not here's how to live a life without emotion or without negative emotion it's it, it's impossible um there will always be negative emotion it's like it's how to handle it um how to accept it sometimes and how to uh, bounce back from it i suppose as well and you know regain your equilibrium um rather than it persisting, lingering, and just destroying your ability to have, po you know, positivity in your life. Yeah. What do you, on the topic of kind of personality change, which is the whole kind of thrust of your, well, interestingly, like your, your book is, it's kind of, it's like a double book. It, it is a, it's almost like a primer to, to personality theory and like how to think about personality. Um, as well as kind of a manual or like a handbook for if you do want to modify your personality, um, here are ways to think about that. And then also very practical sort of techniques um, for going about that. But in the, in the final chapter of the book, you list off 10 kind of principles for thinking about personal reinvention on, on a personality level. I'm not going to have you go through all of them. Of course, uh, you're going to have to buy the book if you want to, if you want to know about all those people. Um, <laughs> But what do you, I'm curious, of, of those 10, if you kind of think through those, what do you think is the most maybe surprising or underappreciated one? Like, what's the one that uh, more people should highlight who don't? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say, can I pick a couple? Sure. Um, I, I would say, I, I think I, I, it's frustrating sometimes, I suppose, operate, you know, sort of working in this field when you see the quick fix tips out there and the, the books that imply it's going to be a quick fix. So what, I think one of my uh, 10 rules is, you know, that it's going to take time and that it's a philosophy to live by. And I, as in, you know, and just because you achieve some positive change, which, you know, which I hope many people can, you know, it doesn't mean that you won't have relapses or difficult periods in your life when you know uh you, you go back to how things were or or there are new you know you change in new unhelp unhelpful ways you know that you didn't intend so i suppose that's one of them is that you know you gotta you can't rest on your laurels it's a kind of a, a philosophy and a mindset recognizing you know this ongoing challenge of trying to live according to your values and trying to foster you know your your more your helpful traits and sides to your character um rather than thinking it's you know you just do exercises x y and z and you're changed and that's the job. 
ton, you know. Um, and then, um, yeah, if I could pick another one, maybe, I suppose we touched on it already, but, uh, you know, this social side, um, that it's, it's not, you know, personality change as a, as a goal is not something you can really do by yourself because you're going to be influenced by the friend, your friends, your family, your job, you know, the social roles you have. And, and maybe as well to just consider, um, I think it's important to consider, you know, how we're affecting other people and they're, are we helping them, uh, you know, bring out the better sides to their characters? Are we helping them live according to their values and the, you know, the kind of lives they want to live? It's like, we're all influencing each other all the time, obviously. So I think it's just, yeah, that, that kind of side things and, you know, the, the playing it forward. I, I love these kind of studies that show, you know, that kindness and compassion kind of spreads, um, can spread through a, an office or, or, or whatever. That's interesting. I think that's your uh, rule seven. You're more likely to succeed with the help of others. I think that would be also my pick for the one people are most likely to uh, underestimate. Um, because I, th well, let me ask you this. What do you make of this? Uh, it made me think of this. There's this line by uh, Jim Rohn, who's kind of a, I don't know, self-help guru from the 70s or 80s. Um, and he's famous for saying, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time around. What do you, what do you think about that? Having just written a book about personality and personality change and us talking about the importance of um, relationships and community in that area. Do you basically agree with that? Do you disagree with that? What do you, what do you think? <laughs> it sounds very specific. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you were to, if you were, if you were to take, say, you know, you took your, I don't know, your, your, your spouse and your manager at work and your best friend and whatever, like five people you literally just spend the most time around yeah. and you gave them all personality assessments. And then you sort of average those scores and then you took a personality assessment. Like, do you think it would line up pretty well? I think I, I can imagine you would see some correlations. I mean, obviously there's the whole like selection, like are we, you know, we draw yeah. more similar and so on and so forth. But I, yeah, I, I think from all the research I covered and the stories I tell in the book, I, I, there's, there's a grade of truth to what he's saying, uh, I think. And I think it's probably underestimated that side of things. And there's something called, um, I think it's called the Michelangelo effect, mm. uh, which I quite like this idea. That, yeah. Like um, you're more likely to change in the ways that you want. If you're with a partner, you know, a close partner who sees you in that way and who um, models uh, those characteristics as well. Cause then they, they give you positive kind of reinforcement when you behave in the ways that you, that you aspire to behave. And obviously you, you can obviously model yourself on, on them and how they deal with life and other people. And so, um, yeah, the idea is it's like, uh, like Michelangelo chiseling away, uh, at a sculpture to reveal the kind of ideal form beneath and, um, so yeah, I, I I do think, yeah, I do think there's truth to it. Basically, yeah. Yeah, I one of the things I notice as a therapist is that a lot of my clients who are um, struggling emotionally, a, a very strong common factor is they they spend a lot of time around people who I don't want to. I'm not gonna say they're bad people. That's a little judgmental, <laughs> but they're people who are not a good fit for them for my client. 
they have very different values, very different ways of going about things, different ways, very different ways of looking at the world. Um, and so a lot of the time I can't help but think like, man, so much of your struggle, either just struggles emotionally or struggles to, to change and, and sort of move your life in a more positive direction is being really interfered with by the, those five people, basically, you know, that, that collection of people you spend the most time around. And so I, I wonder a lot about this, like, if you, like, I wonder if there are uh, order effects with personality change. So let's say you do want to change something about your, your personality. You want to be a little less neurotic, right? Does it make sense to go straight for interventions that would target neuroticism? Like, I don't, you know, keeping a gratitude diary or something like that, um, to use a, just a simple example. Or does it make more sense to go after, like, if kind of people and relationships are so important for how we feel and sort of our, our growth trajectory, would it make sense to go, maybe you go more after extroversion a little bit so that you can get better at spending more time around people who are a better fit for you? And then, so what do you think about that? Are there, do you think there are order effects in terms of uh, changing personality that people should think about? Yeah, well, so I don't know which is the more important, but I in in the book I I argue for I think I call it kind of inside out approach. So yeah. that would be working on your own emotional regulation strategies, let's say, or your um, you know you can do like cognitive training exercises or kind of CBT type exercises to help you change yourself for sort of from within. And then I I do talk about kind of outside in. So very much what you're describing then, like thinking about who you hang out with, what you do in your spare time, uh, that that kind that side of things, and that there's something it's it's so basic, it seems so obvious, but there's there's a technique I discuss in the book called the situation selection strategy, and they did this neat study where they the, the researchers encouraged their volunteers, some of them to be much more mindful and intentional of, I, I think it was over the course of a weekend, like what situations they were gonna put themselves in according to how those different situations made them feel. So they, they encouraged them to make a more conscious effort to put themselves in situations and do activities that make them feel good <laughs> rather than, and I mean, and it does sound really obvious, but I think a lot of the time, many of us slip into you know these kind of routines uh, and habits and it, you know it can be the same with friendship groups you know you, we're not necessarily that intentional about it um, a lot of our decisions are based on convenience and, and and sort of maybe mindless habit sometimes and um in that study the situ with the situation selection strategy yeah the people who were more intentional about it ended up you know they enjoyed more positive emotion and they they reaped these benefits um and i think it comes more naturally to some people than others so interesting i think like uh traits agreeability people who score highly in agreeability i think one uh, interesting finding there is that people who score highly in that trait tend not to put themselves in situations where they get stressed or that are unpleasant you know that's what that seems to be one of the kind of defining features of scoring highly in that trait and i I, I've personally, like one way I've kind of taken that to heart or tried to, you know, learn a lesson from this kind of thing is just, for example, is um, 
like on on Twitter, where it's so easy if you want to kind of end up engaged in, in these arguments and stuff like quite sometimes you know uh spiteful and um bitter arguments and it can be maybe at, at, the, at the time it can be quite exciting you know you get caught up in one of these twitter storms or what have you but i mean i re I, I was reflecting on it and i thought you know i just i feel awful afterwards i hate i i, I hate aggro it makes me feel terrible um it affects my sleep afterwards and so on so um I kind of made a conscious decision one day, right, I'm not going to do that. It doesn't doesn't make me feel good. I'm going to be more intentional about it rather than um, let myself get drawn in to those kind of things. So I was trying to take a leaf out of the book of people, yeah, like these yeah. agreeability people. <laughs> I, yeah, I just think this is such a fascinating topic, this, this idea of the not just the situations we put ourselves in, but I think specifically the social situations we habitually put ourselves in or not. Um, it makes me think, Christian, we, sh we, should, we should run a study with your book where we, we get two groups of people who want to change their personality. And one group kind of reads the book in isolation on their own. And one group reads it like in a book group, you know, it has like a book club um, and they read it together with, with other people who are also interested in personality change and sort of see who, who does better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of testing this inside out versus outside in uh, approach with yeah, that's with cool I like that idea <laughs> <laughs> um, well Christian thank you so much uh, for taking the time to do this um, and happy pub day you know this is it's an honor I get to interview you on the day your book is being published so it's a it's a huge accomplishment um, to publish any kind of book but especially given the, the circumstances of the last year and um, yeah, it's been, I know it's been, it's been a journey for you. So, so congratulations. Uh, oh, you. well, thank you. Thank you, Nick. It's, it's been a lot of fun talking to you and I'm really grateful uh, for having the chance to appear on your, on your show. Yeah. So where can, if people are interested in you or the book um, or the rest of your work, where can people go to kind of learn more about you? Uh, so, well, my day job is I'm deputy editor at Psyche magazine. Uh, so that's uh, psyche.co is the, is the web address there. And I am psych writer on Twitter. That's psych uh, underscore writer on Twitter. And yeah, those are the two main ways I would say. And the book is Be Who You Want, Unlocking the Science of Personality Change. And I'm pretty sure you can find it just about everywhere, right? I hope so. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.